Welcome to the first site of our podcasting project. We are at New Haven Harbor where the Quimpiac and Mill River meet. You'll hear about the history of the site, its industries, its wildlife, the patterns of development, and its environmental health. We will also explore the ways that people have used the river. Let's begin by going back in time and taking a look around the harbor. The early bird was the first oyster steamer. Native Americans ate oysters even before the first settlers came to New Haven. When the first settlers arrived, they were very busy with building homes and cutting down forests, so they mostly relied on oysters to sustain them. As the population increased, so many people were harvesting oysters that, in 1762, a law was passed to protect them. The law limited the time of year that people could collect oysters. In 1784, Connecticut passed a statute that gives local towns the power to regulate harvesting. Towns decided to also limit the daily amount that a single person could catch to two bushels. The depletion continued and in 1845, New Haven began to import seed oysters from other areas. Captain Townsend, who studied oystering in France, experimented with growing oysters in a little gully close to Fort Nathan Hale. He discovered that native old oyster shells could be used and grown more successfully. Everybody see these marks on the picture? Well, when I scan that picture in, I said, oh, I'm going to have to do something in my Adobe Photoshop elements. And then I realized they're oyster poles. So most people think of oysters that they would, oysters need to attach to anything. It could be, it, it could be a brick, a piece of wood in the river, because that's how they grow. And, and so it shows, it shows from bank to bank all the oysters, all the oyster beds. This is the Yale Boathouse, which was built on the Mill River. In 1852, Yale students invited Hartford students to meet at an agreed location to test the superiority of their oarsmen. This friendly invitation led to the first formal intercollegiate athletic competition in America, a crew race. The Yale crew team became known as the Yale Navy. As we looked across the harbor, we saw a floating yellow line. We found out it was called a boom. Because steel recycling is such a large industry for New Haven Harbor, booms are very helpful in protecting the environment. Booms work because oil floats on water. The boom holds the oil in one place so it can't spread. So, what makes things sink and float? Well, things float because they are lighter than the water that the object displaces. Now, you're probably thinking, what does displace mean? Well, displace means the liquid that it pushes away. Henceforth, it floats, but if it absorbs the water, then it shall sink 
so if the object has holes or absorbs the water, it will sink. Things sink when they weigh more than the water they displace. Large items that are light float. Sinking and floating can be called buoyancy. Buoyancy means the sinking or floating aspect of an object. The car bridge was built on site, piece by piece. Construction began in 1990 and finished two years later in 1992. The entire bridge was made of steel. Tons of large rock called riprap were placed on the bottom of the bridge to prevent erosion. The bridge weighs 1.5 million pounds. The part that spins alone spans a distance of 226 feet. We talked to Richard Gogoltino, who operated the bridge for 10 years. The job can be boring at times. It is always a good idea to bring a good book to read. When a book calls for an opening, the bridge tender will notify communications that the bridge will be closed to road traffic. All police, fire, and emergency vehicles are alerted to use an alternate route. Once the boat has passed in, the bridge is fully closed. The bridge tender will call again to report the road open to traffic. Let's go down to the waterfront to visit Rich, a lobsterman, on the Mill River. He will talk to us about the lobster business, some of the concerns he has, trends in water quality, and the type of boat he uses. Here comes his lobster boat now. It was a family business and it started back in the 70s. They started further up the Quinnipiac River, moved here in, I believe it was 84 or 85. So it's probably 23, 23, 24 years here on the Mill River. But well, we catch crabs, we catch blue crabs, brown crabs, we catch starfish. We catch spider crabs, fish, I've seen sturgeon, I've seen sharks, a little bit of everything. Winkles, garbage bags, we still, you know, whatever floats in. <laughs> if it's something that we could bring in and sell, we will, which usually are the winkles, concha, otherwise known as concha, we'll sell those. Blackfish during the season, we'll sell those if we could, or take them home and eat them. A lot of customers come to the dock and they buy them. And the rest of all the small stuff gets thrown back to grow, grow bigger and catch again, hopefully. I sell to one wholesaler who buys from actually several fishermen in the area and he sells to all the restaurants and supermarkets and plus we sell a few on the dock here and there. The only concerns we have were our inshore stuff, real, real shallow stuff, with all the sewage, well I say sewage, but from the sewage plants dumping all the chlorine in the water, the water actually got cleaner. It's a lot clearer, but also all the chlorine kills all your bacteria, which kills all what the plants feed on and there's no growth inshore. So we lost a lot of our shallow stuff. But other than that, the water actually got cleaner over the years. As you look, I'm the only one left here. And five years ago, there were seven of us fishing right here. So it's dwindled down. I think there's, in the general area, there's probably seven or eight from here all the way to Clinton. It's way, way down. Well, it all depends on the size of the boat. This boat, particularly, is a big boat. And it can carry probably close to 300 on average boat. 100, 140 maybe, but it's, you know, this is rather large, it holds a lot of pots, burns a lot of fuel. 
Rich takes us for a tour on his boat. No. <laughs> Believe me, this is a luxury having one this big. <laughs> Starting out small, growing up, they, you know, it took a lot of years to get something this yeah, big. You know, storage, and mm -hmm. very messy. Yes. <laughs> but it's comfortable. Yeah. It's real windy out there. The boat's really, really, really good in the weather. Like Sunday, Sunday was real rough. Real nice. Do you get seasick? No, I haven't. Actually, believe it or not, on a cruise I did. <laughs> on a boat that was 900 feet long, I got sick. There's eight pots on the string all tied together. Start with this one, got a buoy on it. So it's one, two, I'll ask you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you another buoy, this is right here. They're all tied together. What happens is this is in the water on the bottom. Obviously your buoy is blowing up on the surface. That's how you might you find them. You hang your bait right here on the bag. The lobsters come in. The object is to get them in and to get them this part of the pot as fast as possible. So they eat, do what they do, they come this way, they fall through here, this flap stays down, and they get stuck in there. The little ones go off the escape vents. That's state law, we have to have those. So the small ones can get out. And hopefully they're full of big ones. Next, we went down to see an oyster boat. We expected to learn about oysters and oyster boats, but we didn't expect to meet an oysterman who is allergic to oysters. My name is Jimmy Bloom. I'm captain of this boat. Uh, name's Grace P. Lowndes. And we're going to take a ride up the Quinnipiac River and look at some oysters today. So we have grounds spread out the whole coast of Connecticut and uh, Delaware Bay and we go to different places every day, collect oysters. I was pretty much born into it. My family's been in the business. I'm the sixth generation of my family. So I've been doing it since I was a little kid and just love doing it. I was probably about five years old. I used to go out on the boat with my father. And been doing it ever since. We collect these oysters in the, in the rivers and we plant them on the market beds. And they'll sit there for two years till they're ready for market and then uh, another boat will come and collect them once they're big enough to sell. And then they'll put them in bags or boxes and ship them off to all over the country and the world. Anywhere from 100 bushels to a day to 1,000 bushels a day. And there's uh, market oysters, there's 200 oysters in a bushel. The oysters we're gonna see, there's probably about 2,000 oysters in one bushel. Oysters his historically set in the same places every year, so we know the bottom and we know the areas. And we know the best places to go. We use GPS to map the grounds out and, and stake it out with bamboo stakes. So. Now pollution hasn't affected fishing oysters. We've had problems with parasites and diseases, but pollution isn't really a factor, I don't believe. They filter, they're filthy feeders, so they filter the water and clean the water. And uh, they're good to eat, people love them. <laughs> There's a lot of rules that we have to follow, and the uh, best way to protect them, I guess, is allow the farmers to keep farming the bottom, planting shell to collect the set and dredging, keep, keep dredging to keep the silt off the bottom. When the, when the silt gets on the bottom, the, it smothers the bottom and the oysters have nowhere to, to stick to it. So. 
dredging is the best thing for oyster business. We use these dredges. They're basically a rake with a cage and we scrape the bottom of the, of the ocean and they scoop the oysters up and we hoist them onto the boat and sort through them on this table here. three years it's been going up. We had the, the die-off in 95 and it was about 10 years where, where there wasn't many oysters around but it's definitely increasing now. It's a lot, a lot of hours and a lot of hard work. It... As we travel back into the harbor and look out over the land it reminds us of an entry in a Dutch sea captain's journal as he was exploring Connecticut. Shining bright in the sun were the red rocks. They are still a prominent feature today. Thank you for listening.